to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the player himself, Benny Scala. Benny, Thanksgiving is over. Plenty to be thankful for. How you doing, buddy? Absolutely. You know, Dan, we, we've had an O'Hannon and a Doyle, and what happens? We cracked the Irish charts. Last week, we had a Callahan, and as of yesterday, we were number 58 in the Emerald Isle. And I'm going to publicly I'm go on the record today and tell you that if we ever hit number one in Ireland, I'm going to change my name legally to Red McNulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, luckily the Irish is on our side today. Benny, why don't you uh, why don't you tell everybody who the uh, third gentleman is joining us this evening? Well, this week's guest is not Irish, but that's about the only thing he's not. He's a, a longtime <laughs> wrestling promoter with a stellar reputation, a brand new novelist as well as a wrestling philosopher, a voice of reason in an industry that's really mostly crazy. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Mr. Sheldon Goldberg. Sheldon, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, guys. Oh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. This is awesome. It, it is my pleasure, believe me. Well, you know, we... Uh, Let's just jump right into it. Get, we'll get started. We uh, always start with the same kind of questions. Um, it's mm-hmm. especially the same one, same first one, because it's always different. We always love the answers. So my question mm-hmm. to you, Sheldon, uh, when did the wrestling bug bite you? When did you get involved as a fan? Like, do you remember what it was that you said, holy cow, this is for me? Uh, I would say I was probably uh, 12, 13. You no, know, I, I had seen wrestling before on tv little glimpses of it here and there but it wasn't until i was about 12 or 13 that i really started to watch it and and thought it was like a comic book come to life and uh that was the 1960s actually so uh yeah i uh i fell in love with wrestling at that point and have been in love with it ever since so sheldon when did your when did your fandom uh, transition. So you, you wind up creating New England Championship Wrestling. Tell our listeners through your journey through life and your eventual involvement into the into the wrestling business. Well, it, it's a long journey, and it didn't start until late, actually, in in actually into the wrestling business. Um, uh, when I was in college and right after college, uh, I was involved in professional theater. I uh, did publicity for Broadway shows on tour. I worked for a, a lot of the, almost every one of the major uh, downtown Boston theaters at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, I, I did PR. I answered phones. I did all kinds of crazy stuff. I was a bodyguard. <laughs> not, not that that would have done a lot of good if the situation ever got intense, but I was a bodyguard and a, a couple of times for a, a couple of celebrities. And, uh, you know, I, then I became a producer. I, I produced plays and 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 at some junctures quite successfully so. And then uh, when that business started to change and the money started to get more difficult to raise, uh, I just started to, uh, you know, do some other cool stuff. And one of which was a newsletter called Matt Marketplace, which was for, for collectors of wrestling memorabilia, of which I was one. And uh, rekindled a lot of old friendships and uh, got close to wrestling again. And before I knew it, I was uh, going around to independent shows and selling merch and stuff like that. And then uh, I met the Boston bad boy, Tony Rumble, the late, great Boston bad boy, Tony Rumble. Yes. And worked very closely with him until he passed away in November of 1999. And then I started doing the championship wrestling after he passed. So that, that's the thumbnail sketch of uh, my path to, to uh, being a wrestling promoter. The, Cl- the Cliff's Notes version. 
Right, exactly. Well, let me let me ask you, um, when you were first watching and first kind of getting involved in it, other than the obvious that you were mentioning, did you have any anybody that you were like your favorites, the big fans of, or were you traditionally, you know, your your big stars, or did you like the heels, the tag teams? What what was it like? Did you who were your favorites then? Bruno San Martino was the man. Uh, absolutely amen. the man and and you know you you would have to have lived through bruno's era to really understand how big a star he was and how big an impact he had um you know he he was the the charles atlas story come to life you know the 98 pound weakling who came over to america from from italy and built himself up to be literally one of the strongest men in the world I mean, you, you just look at that classic picture that was on every poster of him, you know, coming at you looking like a bear and, and with his championship belt on, and that just screamed he was the world heavyweight champion. You know, he, he just had – he had a, a, an enormous bond with the fans. And I, it, it's hard to even describe it if you didn't really live through it. Well, I'll give you an example. If you were to walk through the north end – which is the Italian section of Boston, on a night that pro wrestling was in the garden, the streets would be empty because all the Italians would be in the garden to watch Bruno. <laughs> they used to say that an Italian person had three pictures on their wall in Boston. They had the Pope, Jesus Christ, and Bruno San Martino. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, that was how beloved he was, and, and it, it's hard, I think, for people who didn't live through that era to truly get a grasp of that. Sheldon, right. out of curiosity, when, when did you go to your first show, and where, where was it? It was in the Boston Garden. It was around 19, I want to say 66 or 67. The main event was Bruno San Martino versus Gorilla Monsoon, billed as the match of the century, and it was the night the ring broke. Wow. Can you imagine... I mean, here I am, like, like you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, and you see the ring break and these two guys going at each other. I mean, it was like, you know, you, you couldn't tell me that wrestling was predetermined or fake or whatever. Oh, that was real. Yeah. No, because yeah. my, my first match was uh, April of 1968, because I grew up in Long Island, New York. So okay. I went to yeah. the Island, Island Garden in West Hempstead. And wow. It was, yeah, it was Bruno versus Toro Tanaka. And I mean, what a match. And I remember they started bouncing off the ropes and they collided and it sounded, I mean, it felt like an earthquake. I mean, they, they hit yeah. each other so hard and it turned out, you know, Bruno got up at the count of 10, but you know, at, for those nine and a half seconds, my heart was in my throat thinking like, well, what, oh, if, yeah. what if, what if Tanaki gets up and then Bruno, you know, he'll win the mm -hmm. match and then, you know, he'll be the champion. I mean, that's how real it was. I mean, I was, I was yeah. Oh, yeah. just shy of my 13th birthday then. Yeah, well, that's, wow. that's like the, uh, you know, ha having the pleasure of talking to him in the past. Koloff tells the story and, and Bruno, too, like that. They both thought they had had some kind of hearing loss from the from the, their heads colliding when when Koloff beat him for the title. Because mm -hmm. it was like how they just literal hear a pin drop, how quiet the arena got. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. You know, the, the, that'll never happen again. It's sad though. I mean that you know somebody sad. goes to a wrestling match now. They I I believe they go now to be entertained. We went to see a fight. Yeah, exactly. That's gone now. Yeah. Or, or fights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, that's gone now. And it's come up on the show many times that there's a level of enjoyment. And I I thankfully am at that age where I had both. You know. Um, there was, there's a level of enjoyment when you genuinely believe what you're watching is real that fans mm -hmm. today will never, ever have because they know going in it's not, right. you know, like you said, Bruno. I mean, even think back to uh, WrestleMania 2. He was a surprise. Well, I should say surprise. He was a guest entrant in the Battle Royal. Mm -hmm. And uh he got the biggest ovation of every, and that that battle royal had Andre. You think, and that was the the one that had the bears, you know, refrigerated right. berry and all. Bruno got right, the biggest right, right. ovation of anybody, and this was twenty yeah. years after Prime Bruno. You know that yeah. picture I was just holding up a minute ago, like you said, the bear pose. You know, um, right? 
that, and, and he was still one of the biggest stars in the world. I mean, what was it, Benny? Mm-hmm. Who was it we uh, that said about stopping traffic? Bruno could have stopped traffic in New York. Oh City. no, actually, well, no, that was actually Julie Newmar, Muhammad Ali, and superstar Billy Graham. Was that? That's right. I, Oh, yeah. Segment yeah, yeah. Because I was going to ask, you know, we we uh, we had Evan Ginsburg on the show, Sheldon, and we talked about mm-hmm. Bruno, you know, losing, you know, wanting to step down after seven years, eight months, you know, and then agreeing to take the title back three years later from Pedro and only agreeing to take it for a year, which winds up being three and a half years when he finally says, look, guys, I've had enough. I, I wonder like, if if Bruno, like the first reign. He was, you know, probably wrestling 300 days a year. They did take sure. it easy on him in the second reign. But what do you think if, like, if they had maybe, like, gave gave him a semi-normal schedule the first time, how long do you think he could have been champion continuously? That's a difficult question to answer. You know, you got to remember that back in the day, the, the rings were constructed differently. Most of them were boxing rings, which was like falling on concrete. Yeah, mm. Bruno always said. Yeah, Bruno himself said said that if if the rings in his day were like the rings they have today, he could have gotten easily another ten years out of his career because he wouldn't have been so banged up. Yeah. Right. So you know, yeah. So there, there's, it's hard to say. Yeah, I think I think what was it, Benny? He he said the first time he wrestled in a. I want it wasn't NWA. He wrestled in somebody else's ring, the more modern style. He felt like it was a trampoline. Yeah, if if this was the ring I had in 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 the garden, I would have been champion for twenty years. Yeah, but I I just think it's such a phenomenon that like he's the only man in history that you know voluntarily stepped down twice. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, speaking of. I mean, we're talking about running wrestling. Uh, as a wrestling promoter, you wear many hats. You're simultaneously your CFO, your your COO, you're the head of talent relations and Booker, which is a l- really lost art today. Um, during the the origins, Benny mentioned it as promotion of NECW. You were still working a full time job. I mean, how do you do that? When did you sleep? When did you eat? How did you balance running a wrestling promotion and a forty hour work week? Well, I had a, a very unusual job. I worked for a company during that period of time that provided temporary personnel for trade shows and conventions. Oh, so wow. I didn't have a, a traditional 40-hour-a-week schedule. I might work 20 hours one week, 60 hours the next week, uh, have the following week off, and then go back at it. You know, I, I had a base of 20 hours that I worked every week, and then sometimes it was more, and, and sometimes it was less. And I could structure my time in a way that allowed me to accomplish all the things that I was able that I needed to accomplish. So I, I had a pretty unusual job at that point. That was the only way I could do it. And when yeah. you asked me if, if when I slept, I, I was able to function on like four or five hours of sleep. Probably took a few years off my life. I don't know. There you go. So. Sheldon, I, I heard you mention, I watched one of your interviews, and that early on in, in New England Championship Wrestling, you booked a couple of kids from Ireland, and, and they've gone on to do a thing or two in the wrestling business. Who, who would they be? They would be the artist now known as Finn Balor, who was originally Fergal Devitt, that's his real name, and uh, Becky Lynch, who was Rebecca Knox at the time. Oh, she wasn't Rebecca, Rebecca Quinn Quinn's. is her real name. No, right. she oh, wasn't. She Rebecca- wasn't she wasn't oh. Becky Lynch at the time. She was Rebecca Knox. Yeah, she had one match in NECW. It was his first match in the United States. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That, could you see the, the talent even then with these, these guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the story with, with, with Finn Balor, with Virgil, was that he had reached out to me because he really wanted to break into wrestling in the United States. And if you were from a foreign country, that wasn't so easy to do. And uh, he had reached out to me because he was trained by the same guy that trained Doug Williams, who had uh, had his first American match in in NECW. So he looked me up and he reached out to me and he said, hey, you know, my aunt and uncle live in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is just, just a suburb right outside of Boston. 
And he says, I want to go and stay with them for three months, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in booking me. I can send you a DVD with some matches, and, you know, if if you'd be so kind, I I would really appreciate it. And I said, yeah, sure, send it over to me. And I could tell as soon as I I watched the first few minutes, I could tell the kid was an athlete and he had something going and that he was going to be something special. And uh, I remember the guy who was our, our, our booker at the time was Brutal Bob Evans, and he didn't want to use him at all. He just, ah, he's a spot monkey. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole or blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you're too late, Bob. I already booked him. So he was stuck. But he came over, and the first match he had, we used to do these little goofy little TV tapings. It, it, Bob had a wrestling school. In Pawtucket, we used to do these goofy little TV tapings for the internet. And uh, he wrestled a kid by the name of K.L. Murphy, Keith Murphy. And Keith hadn't had a match in about a year. And the fear was it was going to be like ring rust galore. But sure enough, Fergal stepped in the ring with this kid and made him look like Ric Flair. And at that point, everybody's jaw dropped and everybody wanted to work with him. And he just won everybody over because he's a great kid. And so, uh, you know, he uh, he had won everyone over. And, you know, uh, uh, that, as they say, was that. And uh, just a great kid. I actually, um, <coughs> he uh, was looking to get into the New Japan Dojo. At the time was operating in in uh, Santa Monica, California, and as it turned out, Simon Inoki, who was the son-in-law of Antonio Inoki, had owed me a favor for getting one of his guys booked in Ring of Honor, and so uh, he owed me a favor, and 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 I said, you know, Simon, I, I I'm going to cash that favor in. He goes, well, what do you need? And I said, well, I got a kid out here from Ireland. And I, I'd just like you to give him a tryout. I think he's made for you guys. I think that that you know you're gonna you're gonna love this kid. He said, "All right, sure, no problem." So he went out there and won everybody over, and uh, you know, then uh, ended up in New Japan and was the top foreigner for seven years in New Japan. So the the one thing I I, I watched a documentary about him a couple of years ago. The one thing that I remember was that the guy has an incredible work ethic. Did, was that evident with you? Absolutely. You don't, you don't walk around in the kind of shape that he's in without having a, a very strong work ethic. If I can actually ask you, because you, you mentioned both of them. I mean, mm-hmm. Finn Balor, huge star. Uh, when you brought who the uh, would become Becky Lynch over, women's wrestling wasn't where it is now. Did you, I mean, you well, said let me, you, let me correct you about something. I didn't exactly bring her over. She was dating Fergal at the time oh. and she was a, an airline stewardess. So she was able to, to, to fly freely all over the place. Right. And she came, she came to town to spend time with him and we booked her because she wanted to be booked. And that's how that happened. Okay. It was sort of a happy accident. So bring her in is perhaps a better description. Right. Okay. Right. So when when you brought her in, women's wrestling wasn't at the echelon it is now. I mean, in the time in the time there was a period of main eventing WrestleMania and the big time Bex and and the man where she was legitimately the biggest draw, biggest star in wrestling period in the world. Did, mm, did you, mm. did, I mean, even, even seeing the future, like this girl's got everything. Did you think she would be as uh, literally the biggest megastar, uh, really, uh, one of the biggest stars in the world over the last 10 years? Well, I didn't know she'd get to be at that level, but I can tell you this. I knew she was going to be a star. I mean, she had charisma galore. She didn't take any crap from anybody. None, none of the guys, you know how guys are in wrestling. They like to they see a pretty girl. They start trying to goof around and right. You know whatever. She took nothing from any of those guys. She 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 had an answer for everything that came out of their mouths, and she's just a great girl. I I you know I thought she was terrific, and you know uh, I got a phone call from 
a fellow named Dave Prezak. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Prezak. He runs Shimmer. Okay. And Dave mm-hmm. said to me, well, what about this girl? What about the, the, this Rebecca Knox? You think I should have put her? I says, Dave, don't hesitate. She's got it. She's got it in spades. And uh, he did book her, and uh, she did do quite a number of dates with her. And then she, uh, I guess, had a serious concussion, or maybe a couple of them. And she was out of the business for for a number of years uh, before finally coming back. So, you know, she's one who really, you know, kind of after, you know, uh, having issues with concussions, kind of picked herself back up from the bootstraps and got right, right back into it and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. That's fair. You, you know, it, it's funny. You you mention how wrestlers act like that. It's not just wrestlers. That's the same way Benny acts when we have women on the show, too. So <laughs> I don't really know how to act, to be honest. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, talking about wrestling, going back to that, you mentioned um, Benny was saying in the interview, you know, booking these kids from Ireland, you mentioned in the same interview, you had some involvement hosting a couple of NWA heavyweight championship matches. Uh, I was hoping you could kind of one expand on that. And if you could, you know um, also, what are your thoughts on Billy Corgan's announcement that the NWA plans on reintroducing or trying to recreate the territory system going forward? Okay. First part of that question is NWA was holding a tournament. This was after they terminated their arrangement with TNA. They were looking to crown a new world heavyweight champion, and they were having uh, a tournament, which they wanted to stage in in different cities around the country, and including outside of the country. They ended up doing the end of it, uh, I want to say Puerto Rico. Um, I, I forget where else. But in any case... Uh, they wanted to do it from different locations, and they they connected with different promoters who uh, could shoot these matches so that they could be used for uh, a DVD or something like that. And um, Dave Marquez and Bob Trobich, who were really the, the mainstays of the NWA at that time, both of them were friends of mine, had reached out to me because they knew we were doing these internet TV shows and so forth. They knew we could shoot things. And uh, they asked us if we would uh, host a couple of those matches, and uh, we very readily agreed. And the first of them, first one was uh, was Fergal Devitt versus Mikey Nichols, who you might remember as um, what was the t- tag team that he was involved in. He did some time in WWE, Mikey Nichols. Uh, I think he's he's back in Japan now. But anyway, uh, it was him. And Fergal in one match, and Claudio Casagnoli against uh, Pepper Parks, who is the Blade in AEW okay. now. So, yeah, so those were the two matches. And uh, they got over great. You know, we shot him, we did promos for him, and so forth. And uh, it was a good deal to help out the NWA, even though we weren't members of the NWA at the time. It's sometimes those personal connections come in handy. And the second part of your question is, what do I think about Billy Corgan? I have a lot of respect for Billy Corgan. You know, it, it's not so easy to be a wrestling promoter if your last name isn't McMahon, and or your last name isn't Khan, and and you you're the heir to a multi-billion-dollar fortune. Right. Now, Billy Corgan is a guy who's made a fortune in the music business, and just that statement alone means he's got to have something on the ball. Right. Uh, he's a creative guy, and, and you may not like everything he does, but I, I think his product is interesting. He's trying to do the best he can with what he has. He, he, he can be outspent 50 to 1 by either one of the major companies. And, and just to try to survive and to try to carve out a niche in, in that wrestling world is a, is a difficult thing to do. Look at MLW. I mean, they've, they've managed to hang on and do some interesting things, but you know, they, they don't have that TV exposure that would really propel them to the next level. And Billy's in that same boat. So hopefully that happens at some one time or another. And, uh, you know, more people get to, uh, experience the NWA, his version of it. And I hope that it's successful. Sheldon, do you think he can actually pull off the whole territory thing though? 
That's a hard one. I, I, I don't think so. You know, the reason when I was involved in the NWA years ago, when Dennis Corluzzo and the late Howard Brody were running the NWA, is, is all these different promoters and nothing, you know, promoter A and promoter B might be in two completely different situations in terms of what they were able to actually produce both in the ring and, and, and uh, as far as like any kind of production goes. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of these promoters who, you know, were offered the chance to be part of the NWA for 500 bucks. So a lot of these $500 promoters came in and, and many of them weren't very good promoters at all. They, they just wanted to have those initials because they were nostalgic for it. And, and, you know, it was a hard thing to hold together. Uh, a lot of the, the those promoters back in that period would not support the world champion because they didn't want to pay to bring him in. If you can imagine when Dan Severn was the champion and these promoters say, nah, we're all set. We don't need him. You know, that was a, a tragedy because Dan represented the NWA very well when he was champion. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So... I, I hope it succeeds only, and I grew up around this, you know, pretty much the same time you did. And mm-hmm. you know, when you the Boston Garden, what they ran monthly, pretty much. Right. And I'm sure there were spot shows at local high schools. I mean, you could go at, at the very minimum once a month. You know, maybe maybe more than that. Where you know, now living, I live outside of Tampa. They 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 come here maybe once once a year, maybe maybe twice on a good year. But right. to me, uh, wrestling is. I think wrestling is is intimate and it should be close where, you know, you, you, you could, you know, even I, I always reference Memphis or Florida, uh, you know, mm-hmm. here in Florida, the the uh, Homer Hesterly, it was every Tuesday night, um, yeah. every, every week. I mean, so I'm sure that if you sat in the same seat every week, you know, Dusty Rhodes and Bugsy McGraw and all those guys, and Kevin Sullivan, they all walk right past you. They probably knew who you are. And of course, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's what wrestling should be. It's, it's just, it's if, so if they didn't know who you were, they recognized your face. Right. But I mean, it, yeah. it, it, wrestling to me should be up close and personal. And it's just so, it's just so distant now. Right. right. And maybe if they did with the territories, maybe there would be a promotion that's going to book something on, a, you know, maybe twice a month or even monthly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I, I, it, it's hard because the buy-in now is so much stiffer than it was when I started promoting in 2000. I mean, just to do anything competitive, you really need a lot of money to do it. And, and you know, I remember, I'll tell you, a few years ago, uh, six years ago, I suffered an injury. I, I broke my right shoulder in five places in a fall. Oh, yeah, it yeah. was bad. And uh, when I when I had healed up and I, I, I got back and I, I I just didn't want to, I just didn't have the same level of energy that I had before. And what I wanted to do was to bring some money and, and other people into it and expand the company in a way that we could do a lot of creative things. I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to get my own building and run wrestling every week and use that one building to tape TV out of and to create a, um, you know, uh, what I wanted to do is actually build a landmark. And by that, I mean, I wanted to build a place where when you walked in the door, it screamed pro wrestling. You know, memorabilia on the walls, you know, old, old eight by tens, copies of old, old, the old uh, newspaper ads and stuff like that. Just a building when you walked in the door. This is this is all about pro wrestling. Right. I wanted to create a place where people go, hey, this is cool. You know, look at all these guys. There's, you know, Killer Kowalski over here and Sam Martino over here and Ernie sure. Ladd there and Bulldog Brower and all these. You know, I wanted to, to to create a place that celebrated the legacy of what had come before. And as hard as I tried, as many people as I spoke to who who may not necessarily have been able to cut the check themselves, but could help get other people to do it. They all looked at me like I had nine heads, like I was absolutely crazy. Because I felt that you, you if you can't innovate the wrestling, innovate the surroundings, you can have the greatest show going, 
But if you're in a, a VFW hall or an armory or whatever, those places are not built for a pro wrestling experience. You, you have right. to jerry-rig what you're doing when you, whenever you, you get to a, a building. And in some cases it works and it's nice and it's pleasant and, and it's fun, but it, it's a compromise. And I didn't want to compromise anymore. And, and as hard as I tried, I, ju- I just couldn't get the funding to be able to do what I really wanted to do. That's a shame. It really is. Mm-hmm. Sheldon, yeah. your, your talents are not solely confined to the wrestling arena by any any means. And we talked about it earlier. You're talking about your past lives before wrestling. But um, I saw in your, on social media, I saw your name on a playbill. And um, mm-hmm. you talked about the creation of the jukebox musical. And I, I'm, I'm very curious about that. Okay, so it, it it's uh, the late 70s, 79, as a matter of fact. And I was doing PR for a lot of the local productions that would come through town, some of the pre-Broadway shows and so forth. And it became very clear to me, it was made clear to me by the president of, of the press agents union that I was never going to get a union card. There was a closed shop and, and you can forget about having a career doing this. You may as well do something else. And not wanting to take that no for an answer. Uh, I decided that I was going to become a producer. And so I had this idea. There was a, a show in town at the time. It was called the all night strut. And what it was, was a, a musical review that consisted of songs from like the 30s and 40s. So it was like my parents' era, you know? And, and it was nice and it was a, a hit and so forth and, and, and people enjoyed it, but it wasn't something that someone like myself could really relate to. So I decided I was going to do a musical review with more contemporary music. So I created a Motown review called Dancing in the Street. It was the first time that anything like this had been done. And it was a smash hit, and it ran for a couple of years in Boston and in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, it it was a great experience and so forth, and and that was the creation of the Jukebox musical. And, And I know that for a fact because the show in Boston was so popular that celebrities would come in every weekend just to check it out. And people like Ellie Greenwich, you know, she did that uh, that musical review called Leader of the Pack. You know, there were a number of different people who came to see what we had done so that they could maybe, you know, they were they were pop composers and, you know, pop writers who thought they could take their songs and turn it into something like that. So it was the creation of the Jukebox musical. Very proud of it. It was very successful. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting time. As a... Uh as a musical lover myself, my wife and I have season tickets to the the Broadway that comes through here. Um, it, the jukebox musical is very popular. I'm curious with like the successes of like Mamma Mia and Across the Universe and Jersey Boys, which was on our tour last season. Uh, you know, right. I, mean, I I give you all kinds of props for for that, but I'm curious to kind of play off of when we were talking to you about Balor and Becky Lynch earlier. Um, would you have any, did you have any, I mean, you, you you had to have known this is a great idea, but did you see it being, I mean, there was, there was a period of time when that was pretty much the biggest thing uh, it, in Broadway was the jukebox musical. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I started, when I started putting that show together, people thought I was nuts. There were people in the theater who thought there wasn't a good song ever written after 1958. Seriously, if it wasn't like like you know Rodgers and Hammerstein or Lerner and Lowe or right. whatever, they thought, ah, oh, those 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 kids, that crazy music, and and it was just bullshit. You know, they were just of another time. They just didn't get it. And and when we did this show, everybody got it immediately. And and it was a, uh, you know, I didn't make a ton of money on it. I had a whole bunch of partners that I had to take in just to get the money together, but. The, the, it, I just proved a point, you know, and and that was the satisfaction. I just proved a point that, that it could be done. It was done and I did it. And, uh, you know, I, I was able to close that chapter on a high note. 
mean, that's great. But, um, <laughs> you know, to, to kind of circle back to wrestling, um, you, mm-hmm. you, we were just talking about your success as a promoter. Uh, I want to kind of get maybe somebody that's, I don't want to say not successful, but carries a lot of pros and cons in the discussion. Uh, no mm-hmm. pun intended on that one, but we, we talk about Tony Khan for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like you said, he's you know the heir to the billionaire fortune. He's got he's got daddy's money, uh, and without that financial backing, I mean, AEW doesn't exist. Um, but I was hoping maybe you could kind of expand on that, having the experience in the back. If Tony Khan has to get off the ground the way you did, he's got to shake hands and make the deals with the local sponsors and do the, you know, what a lot of the territories come came up doing. Does does he do that, or is, is the only reason he's got his foot in the door is Daddy's billions? I don't know. I don't know the man. You know, I've never met him. I'd like to meet him. I'd like to thank him for what he's trying to do for wrestling. Um, I wish him every success. I, I think the problem for Tony is that he just didn't have enough years in and around the business before he started promoting. Like in my case, I was hanging around independent shows for 10 years before I promoted one. That's a long time. I, I in fact, when if Tony Rumble hadn't passed away, I'd still be working with him. You know, I, I never would have, I never would have gone out on my own. It was just the fact that he had passed away and, uh, you know, it left a big void in the marketplace up here and somebody needed to do something. That, and if I didn't take a shot at it, I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. So to more directly answer your question, I, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I assume he's a bright kid. You know, he, he's got to be to be able to, to put together what he's put together. But this being able to put that together, and then there's the nuts and bolts of actually promoting wrestling, you know, dealing with egos and dealing with uh, all, all the the myriad of problems that, that you face when you're trying to be a wrestling promoter. I know for me, it was a good five or six years before I really started to get it. You know, it, it, took, it took time. I was kind of a, a babe in the woods and a novice, and, and it was a lot of trial by error for me, but... You know, I, I just kept my head up and kept moving forward, and eventually I got it. So, Sheldon, uh, amidst the uh, insanity of Facebook, I see a post from you, you know, several times a week called Advice for Wrestling Life. And uh, probably my favorite thing on Facebook, these posts are filled with both advice and inspiration for both aspiring and even established wrestlers. And, you know, even a couple of words of wisdom for some promoters. What inspired you to do this? And uh, I've seen a couple of wrestlers publicly thank you. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten? Oh, amazing feedback. Amazing feedback. I'm very grateful for it. And, you know, what inspired that was, you know, I, I was trying to put some things together. And just the attitude of people now is so different from when I started promoting. Uh, it, it's, you know, there used to be what I like to refer to as the sanctity of promotions in that, that, you know, uh, guys wanted to work for NECW because it was the place to work at the time, or it was a goal that they had. Now everybody's goal is something different. Everybody's goal is to get a contract and get signed someplace. And not to say that that shouldn't be your goal, but if you're going to work independent shows, you need to, to come at it, with the same work ethic and the same set of values that you would have if you were working for a major promotion. It's a job like any other job. It may be a small-scale job, but it's a job nonetheless. And if you don't treat it like that, then, you know, you're you're not doing the promoter any favors. You're not doing yourself any favors because you're not not creating an impression of yourself as being somebody that, that people would want to invest in. So, so that was really the, the start of it. I really wanted to just lay it out there for people and say, hey, this is how you behave. This is what you're supposed to do. These are some things to, some words to live by. If they inspire you, great. Uh, if they challenge you, great. Um, you can certainly feel free to disagree with me, but my intention was just to leave the business better than the way I found it coming in. 
Well, I can tell you, I am the quote unquote commissioner for Jimmy Valiant's uh, Boogie's Wrestling Camp BWC, and mm. I'll always share. And I, I run his his page for the school. Um, I'll always share it, and you know, I get quite a few comments from the kids. And I just think it's really important. I mean, if I was, you know, forty years younger and aspiring to do something in the wrestling business, other than you know just talk about it, I, I would I would read I would devour every word of that advice because it, it's solid gold. I mean, a lot of it's common sense, but you know, we yeah. don't really we don't have common sense when we're twenty three. You know, when we're in our sixties, then you yeah. know, then we're. So I think it's really really great that you share this and that. You know, these young kids have the advantage of, of, you know, taking in this wisdom for somebody who's, you know, has been there. Yeah, and not just somebody who, 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 somebody who's fallen down and had to pick himself up, dust himself off and, and, and get back to it again. You know, I, I, I'm going to put that in a book form at some point in time. Uh, I just published a book, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about in a while. Yeah, but, we're gonna get to- um, yeah but uh, I'm going to put that in book form at some point. It's really after after being encouraged by many people to do so. Yes. Like I said, I've seen a couple of I think Davey O'Hannon said something, you know, I I remember seeing, you know, his comment and just, you know, I like that because it's it's it, people are reading. You know, I have this thing about attention span and it seems like on social media, you know, you can post a picture of, a, you know, a piece of cake and get 27 likes but then you could post like, you know, half your life story and pour your entire heart into it. And you'll get three likes because people don't want to spend the five minutes to read it. And, and right, to, right. you know, the fact that people are actually stopping reading your stuff. I mean, that that speaks volumes as to the content. You know, we've talked a lot about what you've done and, you know, the wrestling. We obviously mentioned the musical. We're going to get to the book here shortly. Um, but. Since, you know, wrestling is kind of where it all started and, and where the conversation started. If you had to pick one thing, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment in wrestling? NECW in total. Just lasting as long as I did. Being able to do TV. Um, you know, you, you run something for 20 years. That, that, that's a lot of people who work for you. A lot of matches. A lot of, a lot of things. A lot of, a lot of high times. A lot of... You know, rock bottom times, but uh, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything else. That's nice. awesome. I can respect that. Yeah. Benny? Yeah, uh, Sheldon, now, um, as someone with a passion for writing, I've been looking forward to asking you about this, you know, the the newly published novel, uh, The Last Fall. I was actually chatting with a mutual friend, the Boston bad girl, uh, Brittany Brown, this morning. Ah, and, okay. uh, Yeah, and she said... Yeah, you're going to absolutely love this book. So I'm, I'm. De- this is definitely going to be my next read. And uh, so, can you give us maybe a little tease as to the storyline and where can we find this book? Sure. Uh, the Last Fall is a fictional story uh, of a, a fictional wrestler by the name of Rick Pacheco, and it follows his career from literally stumbling into the world of professional wrestling at the age of 11 in 1971 through the end of his in-ring career in 1999. And it follows all of his ups and downs and trials and tribulations against the backdrop of a changing industry. And uh, uh, it was a fun novel to write. I've got to tell you, this was maybe the most satisfying creative experience I've ever had. And, And that's not to take anything away from any other creative experience I've ever had. But, but what was different about this is that it was solely my creative experience. You know, when you, when you promote wrestling or when you produce a play, when it comes down to the moment of truth, all you can do is stand at the back and watch. Whereas this is just me and a computer, me and a word processor or whatever, writing something out and either you like it or you don't like it. And so it was rewarding on that level. And where where can we find it? It's on Amazon. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's available in paperback or Kindle, and uh, or if you wish to purchase an autographed copy, you can go to my website, which is necw.tv/events, and you'll be able to buy an autographed copy directly from me, and I will send it out to you personalized, and. Uh, Again, I, I hope people will uh, will look at it, and I hope they will enjoy it. 
Brittany loved it. So, and she said that I would love it. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to know what you think after you've read it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, I watched a lot of these things on TV or in movies, you know, uh, things that were produced about pro wrestling and, and they're never true to the business. Like Heels is a great series and, and, you know, the wrestling part of it was fine, but the the business they portray is nothing like the business of pro wrestling that I was involved in or anybody else for that matter. I always thought that, that you can't take a Hollywood writer and it doesn't matter how much research you do. If you don't know the business and don't have a feel for it, you're not going to be able to really do it justice. So I'm hoping that when people read this book, they'll say, wow, he really did the wrestling business justice. So it is a fictional book, but I'd I, I like to think that uh, in, in many instances it's fact-based fiction, and uh, I, I just think you'll get a kick out of it when you read it. You just brought something up, and I, I don't remember. Dan could probably remember the details more than I could, but I believe WWE hired several years ago a writer who knew absolute creative writer who knew nothing about wrestling. Yep. Yeah, that was, I want to say that was during COVID, and she ended up getting fired pretty much before she started because she, yeah, she had, had tweeted, a short shelf life. But she like, had what? tweeted something, they were doing the Bobby Lashley story, and she tweeted something right. about it and basically said, like, this is, because she was a soap opera and TV writer, and she's like, somebody had asked her something about wrestling, and she's like, I have no idea who I... I, who these people she even said in her tweet like don't ask me to name the champions i know nothing about the company or wrestling as a whole like i'm just even, here to write scripts she and, lashley's name i think yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah. I, think was, I, I think she got something wrong about him because i want to say he was world champion at the time and mm -hmm. or one of the world champions at the time and she was like yeah i don't know who this guy is or, or like why he's important and it's like Basically, she was going to write scripts, guy number one and guy number two, and then let everyone else fill in the wrestlers. She didn't have to know her the product or care at all. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's ridiculous. Shutton, you actually said something that really struck me because I was a big fan of heels, and I, I'm looking forward to uh, going to see Iron Claw. I'm curious, uh, kind of like the um, – you know, where lawyers will tell you that my cousin Vinny is one of the most accurate portrayals of a courtroom or Donnie Brasco is one of the most accurate portrayals of the real mafia. What mm -hmm. in fiction that you've seen or read is the most accurate portrayal of real backstage wrestling or wrestling at, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, at a backstage event? Well, the wrestler wasn't bad, but again, in the wrestler, you really didn't see anything about the office. It was just about the, the wrestlers. And the wrestling, it wasn't about the promoter or anything like that. You know, the, the mentions of, of a promoter were, were very brief. Um, but no, nobody's really done that. You know, no, nobody's really captured the business of wrestling you know, you, with any, any sense of, of, of verisimilitude or any sense of truth. You know, well, I, I, don't, I don't remember anything. Then, then let me ask you, uh, kind of just your thoughts as as we get ready to wrap up. Um, what do you what do you think about the series like Dark Side of the Ring and the Tales from the Territory, where they basically reenact and put a camera backstage and tell everybody this is what really happened, this is how these conversations went. What do you think about exposing? And I mean, obviously, some of it decades later, exposing fans right. to that side of the business that a lot of them had never seen or even heard of. Right. Well, you know, once Vince McMahon went to the New Jersey legislature and said, hey, this is all a show, that was it. The, the last drop of toothpaste left the tube, never to be put back in it again. Uh, you know, the way I, I the analogy that I like to use is that back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, the major film studios thought that if you told people how a movie was made, nobody would ever want to see one. And of course, as you know, quite the opposite. 
you know, movie gossip, TV gossip, the inside backstage doings of any kind of film or television production is like a cottage industry. So there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be the same for wrestling. I think it's killed a lot of the enjoyment that, that people get from it because I, I think people just, you know, they're, they're sitting there, you know, uh, analyzing the booking and analyze instead of just enjoying it in the moment. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've lost something very valuable and it's never going to come back, unfortunately. But, you know, Dark Side of the Ring, you know, it, it, absolutely, it, 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 it has a lot of validity, you know, to, to pro wrestling is a business of a, of a gazillion stories, you know, it's endless yeah. stories in, in, in pro wrestling. And so, you know, it, it's only natural that, that, you know, those stories would make good television. Well, Benny, uh, we get ready to wrap up. Final final thoughts to you. Any follow-ups? Any any thoughts here? Well, I want to know what uh, you know. Sheldon seems to have conquered the musical world. He's conquered the wrestling world. He's conquered the literary world. Like, what else is is Sheldon going to conquer? Well, I don't know if it's got any like new territory, but we have a project that's going to come out after the first of the year uh, called New England Championship Wrestling: The Lost Matches Live. Now, I haven't run any live events for the last four or five years, really since the pandemic. And uh, I don't know that I'm going to be doing that. But I do have over 20 years of footage, some of which has never been seen before. So what we're going to do is put together a a program of, of, of lost matches and we're going to show this in a movie theater with a live Q&A afterwards. Wow. So, yeah, so that that's why it's called The Lost Matches Live. And uh, I'm looking forward to that very much so because, uh, you know, we've got a lot of cool stuff that, that, you know, never made it online or never was released on TV or whatever. So uh, I'm looking forward to sharing that with people. There's a lot of NECW fans kicking around out there who, you know, frequent uh, you know, my page or the, the NECW wrestling page. And, uh, you know, I, I, I share old. TV episodes and so forth, but uh, you know, I wanted to give them something new. And if I couldn't give them a live event, I wanted to give them the next best thing. So that would be this. Well, that's awesome. And again, uh, we appreciate your time. Um, you said your your book is available on Amazon. And uh, can you once again the 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 website if if our uh, listeners want to get a um, signed copy. Yep, it's NECWTV. I'm sorry, NECW.TV slash events. Well, there you have it. NECW.TV slash events for a signed copy. You can also check on Amazon. Sheldon Goldberg, published author, accomplished uh, in the production of musicals and, of course, in wrestling, New England wrestling. We, we seem to mention New England a lot, New England wrestling a lot on this show. Benny, uh, you know, so a lot of talent that's come through there and it's oh, crazy yeah. to think, you know, obviously anywhere they can find clips, you can see some of the bright young stars well, of their day that are mega stars today. It's, it's great stuff. Um, obviously Dan and Benny fans, we can be heard anywhere. Podcasts can be listened to our friends on YouTube at Monty and the Pharaoh for Sheldon Goldberg, the man of many hats for the player himself, Benny Scala. I'm Dan Sebastiano. Have a good night, everyone. And we will see you next time we're in the ring.